Let us begin with a prayer here. We have been praying all morning in the music. That's one thing I felt is the prayer of the band and the prayer of your singing. And now let's say a prayer as we go into the word. Gracious God, I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for what is recorded there in all of its aspects, but especially today as we capture Jesus' teaching and are given a vision of a new kind of kingdom that is only possible through you. Open our minds, open our hearts to the truth you would have us take home today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So the season we're in, you know full well, is epiphany. And some of you know the meaning of epiphany is manifestation, showing out, and specifically the showing out of God's glory to the Gentiles. Because you have to remember, up until the point of Jesus, it has been intended for the Jews, for Israel. They are a nation unto God. And what happens in Jesus and what happens in Paul and what happens in the evangelists is that children of God goes out from Israel and it begins to wrap up all, all kinds of other peoples and nations and backgrounds. And so Epiphany is a really important season because it reminds us that this gospel is not just for us. This gospel is meant to go out into the world. Some of you may be called to be missionaries. Some of you may be called to stay at home. But whatever the way you are able to do it, you reveal the glory of God in your life to those who may not have heard it. So that's what Epiphany is all about. When we hear stories in the gospel during Epiphany, they're usually miracles, um, you know, Jesus turning water into wine, or some dramatic thing that makes us see that God is in Christ. Today is a little more subtle. In today's scripture lessons, both in the gospel lesson and in 1 Corinthians, we see that God's wisdom is very different than the world's wisdom. What causes Jesus to tick is different than what causes us to tick. And part of it is, is how do we get aligned in that godly wisdom? How do we let it go down into our bones so that we live as if we're in the kingdom of God and not as if we're in the kingdom of the world? So these lessons in Epiphany, they are subtle, but Jesus is showing us something through his teaching of what's possible for us. So let's begin with the gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. I was teaching a class earlier this morning, and I was referencing the story about Martha and Mary, and God bless that story. It has been squeezed, and every bit of juice has been drawn out of it, and it has been misused, and so we hear it, and we're like, oh my gosh, here we go. Beatitudes can trigger the same thing. Don't fall for it. I want you to hear the Beatitudes anew, and I'm going to give you a frame by which that might be possible. But before we understand this teaching, we have to know what's happened in Jesus's life. We had the infancy narratives, terrific. We had John the Baptist proclamation and the baptism of Jesus. You are my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. He was then immediately sent into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. He moved to Galilee. I love how Chris put it this morning in his sermon. It was almost like he needed a new crowd, someone who didn't know him when he was a boy. He moves to Galilee. He calls the disciples and he's beginning to create a name for himself. He's healing, he's teaching, he's casting out demons. So he's right at the beginning of his ministry. 
And so he calls his disciples and it turns out the crowds come numbering in the thousands and he goes up on a hill in Luke. It's the plain. Um, just know that whether it's the plain or the, or the hill, it's the same sermon. And he begins his inaugural address. This is like a state of the union speech. So all eyes would be on the new president to figure out what's his priorities. Well, this is Jesus's state of the union speech and it is weird for the listeners of his time. He declares a bunch of things blessings. And I don't know about you, but blessing is one of those words that can be either very churchy or very sarcastic. So I want to move away from the word blessing for just a minute. What's meant here in the language is fortunate. Fortunate are you who, dot, dot, dot. Fortunate are you who. In a sense, the things that we would consider unfortunate, Jesus turns and says, oh, fortunate are you, and we'll go on and find out why they are fortunate. But I want you to hear that language. So listen to the Beatitudes again with that language of fortunate. Fortunate are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fortunate are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Fortunate are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Fortunate are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Fortunate are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Fortunate are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Fortunate are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Fortunate are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he unpacks that persecuted for Matthew's community. That's to understand this passage. It is Jesus' teaching, but it's coming through the community of Matthew. And they have been kicked out of the synagogues. And they have been persecuted by the civil authorities. And they're being turned in by their neighbors. Everywhere they turn, they are in trouble. They are they are attacked, they are persecuted. And so this message, this great sermon of Jesus's is being used in Matthew's community to say, do not give up heart, do not give up hope. You are fortunate, fortunate. We would consider most of these things most unfortunate because the fact is, if you look at the Beatitudes, we don't like to mourn. We do not like to be poor in spirit or in wealth. We don't like to be meek or hungry, or thirsty, right? These are all things that we actually build our lives to seek to avoid. I want you to think for a minute, the, the lengths that you will go to create a reality where these things are not in play. Enough wealth that you don't have to worry about it. Enough strength and courage that you can get through your day. Enough fight in Dallas that you can get to the top. You know what I'm talking about. We are in many ways, shaped by the world's wisdom. And that makes sense if our comfort and even our life is the highest good. But what Jesus does radically here in the divine wisdom of God, I basically like to say this, when we are chasing after those things of strength and comfort, there's nothing wrong with that. But it is small. It means your universe is this big. But if suddenly you can be strong and weak. You can be bold and meek. If you can bring these things together, suddenly your world opens up. And that's what Jesus is trying to do is trying to make us more human, actually. Never mind divinization, never mind becoming like God. Jesus wants us to become more truly human as we are made. And part of that means 
we build the best career we can, but if we lose our job, we're okay. Or we try to build some wealth to hand on to our kids, but if we end up having a bump in life that takes that away, at our core, we are okay. You see how this is working? It's very practical. It's not just spiritualized. It's saying, I want you to live fully. I want you to have the whole of human experience available for you and not to be so afraid that you're trying to structure your life so that it's in this narrow slice. That's not God's will for us. It's not God's will for our community. We can expand and find God in those places where we're poor or mourning or meek or hungry or thirsty. There's no part of creation that God has not redeemed. So I suggest Jesus is trying to acquire more real estate for us to live in. So Paul takes this up in his first letter to the Corinthians. And, you know, just a little fun fact. I know many of you know this. Paul's writings are closer to the time of Jesus than the Gospels. The Gospels are good. They're true. They're kind of the culmination of the schools of thought. But Paul's are pretty immediate. So when you read Paul, whether you like him or not, he is close in on the time of Jesus and his experience is very proximate to what's happened. So it's, it's worth paying uh, attention to Paul. This passage of his, and I just want to read several verses because they're key. This is where he points out that God's foolishness is wiser than the world's wisdom. God's strangeness can liberate us from what we have learned and what we tell ourselves. Listen to this. The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, redeemed, made new, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Paul gets this. And it's why in many Lutheran churches, this is especially Lutheran, but it can be all denominations, you will not hear a single sermon there that does not talk about the cross because that's how they've been trained. They've been trained in this passage that in the cross is the power of God to save. And no matter what the scripture lessons are, no matter what the community's dealing with, you come to the foot of the cross because it is what Jesus done in that vulnerability, in that trust that saves us and saves the world around us. So do not be afraid of the cross. Do not just keep it on Good Friday. The cross is always there before us as a sign that those things which are deemed uh, bereft of God, those things where it feels like everything is lost, God can redeem even that. And so be bold in the proclamation of the cross. Paul knows what it means to be weak. We may not realize this. He was the chief persecutor of the Christians, and now he's their greatest apologist. Do you think it was fun for him to go to a party? <laughs> I don't think so. And I don't think that could ever be healed in his lifetime. He killed their best friends. And they may have been called to accept him into the community and God worked on them, but he had a stigma because of what he had done to the community. Don't forget that. 
He has a defect by his own admission that he begs God to take away, but God leaves it in place to reveal his power. We don't know what it was, but there was something he wanted God to take away. Paul is ultimately reviled, beaten, imprisoned, and martyred for his faith. Like Jesus, there was no darkness he was not willing to go into knowing that God would redeem him, that God would save him, and God would save the community. And Paul practices what he preaches. He trusts that God's grace is sufficient in seasons good and bad. So if God is trying to redeem some real estate for us to live in, and if God is trying to say, don't be so focused on being in the strong, bold, courageous, ambitious place, but that you can also dwell in those plays of, places of lack, I want you to begin to think about whether it was a child or now or the thing you're afraid of. Where is that place where you were poor in spirit or persecuted or bereft of God and wondered how on earth could this be fortunate? I want you to remember a time in your life that in hindsight, when you look back on it, God's grace was made perfect for you in that place. One of the things I go to on this question is my time going to boarding school in South India from ninth to 12th grade in high school. If you hear me talk about it, I will always present it as a gift and a life-changing experience, and it was. But first, it was tough. It was a completely new culture that I did not understand. It was a boarding school modeled on the British system, so some mild bullying is part of the culture. And I had serious illness within my first three months there, amoebic and bacillary dysentery. I thought I would die. And the world's wisdom, or if my parents had fully known what I was going through, they would have said, get him out of there. That is unfortunate. And yet I stuck with it. And in getting to know a new culture, I could see mine more clearly. In toughening up and ignoring the bullies, I became popular in my class. In surviving dysenteries, my stomach became like a tank. <laughs> but you have to stick with it and you have to say, this is not mere weakness. This is not mere sadness. I am being prepared for a thing. I'm being made strong. And it's not in our own power, but it's in God's power that God accomplishes something in us that we cannot do on our own. So I want you to think about that as you go from this place today. I want you to think about what you're facing now that feels like failure, but maybe an opportunity for God's grace to be known. What is your weakness what is that defect that you wish God would take from you, but you still have it? Where are you on that journey from crucifixion to resurrection? Are you so scared of suffering that you're boxing yourself in and blocking out the light into a space too small? Jesus expanded the definition of fortunate, of blessing, because he knew that God could be found everywhere, even at the gates of hell. The church can help you on this journey. You're not alone. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who know what it means to suffer, who know what it means to be weak, to know what it means to encounter God in those places that feel forsaken. And so if you need the strength of another, ask for it. And if you have that gift of having found God in the weak places, share it. 
because the community desperately needs that to live in to the breadth of our humanity that's available to us. Amen.